the climb to success, the American way and God's way. We'll look at that. So let's open up with prayer. Father, I pray for blessing on the hearers of the word. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. I pray you would bless this congregation of believers. Amen. So from a very young age, if you grew up in this society, you are taught to succeed. What exactly that means, of course, will vary by time and place, but mostly when we measure success in the U.S., we mean five things. First, acquiring a prestigious, well-paying job. Second, living in a nice neighborhood and having a nice family. Three, having nice things. Four, having grand experiences. This one is growing in importance, especially because now we can show people online where we are and what we're eating. And then fifth, living as we individually want to, to express our true, authentic selves. This is success in the U.S. One author put it a little bit better, and if you go to the next slide, just could sum it up with this. Position, prestige, prosperity, power, and pleasure. That's success. But you know what? There's something even more fundamental to success in, in the U.S. And I realized this when I was living overseas. I picked up a book. And of course, it caught my interest. It's, the book was Guide to Understanding Americans. And it was a book written for people that might want to travel to America and understand our culture. So it's nothing quite as interesting as seeing how other people look at us and what our culture might be. And this is what it said. It said the most important thing you must understand about Americans is that their entire society is built around winning. Everything that Americans do is built to determine who wins. From a young age, children are taught to play games where you determine a winner. Okay, and then it goes on to say, of course it will say football, but for us we would say soccer. The reason that soccer doesn't gain massive popularity in the U.S. is because they're allowed to be ties. There is no winner. And it said, they even compare that to kissing your sister, that it's such a horrible thing to have a tie and not determine a winner. The other thing that goes along with that, of course, is if you don't win, you're a loser. Whether you got second place or 100th place, doesn't matter. You did not win. So America builds itself around winning. I think that's the fundamental definition of success. I think you'll hear that. I think that's why sports can be so popular here. America cares about winning. All right. So uh, I'm often reminded of this. My brother married a, a woman who was a multimillionaire, or her family was. Um, he took literally what my father said growing up. It's just as easy to marry a rich woman as a poor one. That's what he used to say. So he married a rich woman, and he lives in a very exclusive suburb of a different city. Every time we drive into that neighborhood with my father, he would say, ah, this is where the winners live. All right. And in that family, when they had Thanksgiving last year, they went around and would say what they're thankful for. And the mother, the, patri the matriarch of the family, with tears in her eyes said, I'm just so thankful we're all winners. So... There it is. Christian or not, we get that same message day after day after day after day. It's pounded into us by the media, by our families, our schools, our friends, our professional associations, wherever. If you only work hard enough, if you believe in yourself, if you're willing to make the sacrifice, you can succeed, you can make the climb, you can be the winner. 
And after all, that's what we want to be, isn't it? To do anything else is to lack ambition. It's to sell yourself short. So we learn those aren't good things. So we're to climb always and continually. There's another rung on another ladder, whatever part of society in, whatever school we're at, whatever job we do. And let's say that in education, we get to what we think is the top. I have a PhD or I have a terminal degree in my field. Well, then we have to rank where you got it, right? You're more of a winner if you got it from Harvard than, you got it, than if you got it from Mississippi State. My apologies to all Mississippi State grads. I chose a school I hope not many people went to here. Okay. <laughs> and here's the thing, we hear this a fair bit. When people get in their later years, they often look back somewhat shocked and say, where did my life go? Well, where it went was they spent it climbing. That's what they did. Society gave them the next rung on the ladder and they went for it. So we climb always and continually. Well, two years ago, there was a movie that really caught my attention called Passengers. And if you could put this picture up, it starred Jennifer Lawrence and Chris Pratt. Came out, like I said, two years ago. And I found the plot rather intriguing. If you saw it, this will be a summary. If not, hopefully enough to give you a sense of what the movie's about. It's centered on something they called a sleeper spacecraft. A sleeper spacecraft. And it was transporting 5,000 people from Earth plus 258 crew members in hibernation pods. This is important. We'll see why in a moment. From Earth to Planet Homestead 2. What a creative name, Planet Homestead 2. The journey takes 120 years. Hence, why you need these hibernation pods. Because they freeze you at the age at which you left Earth. Like all technology, there can be malfunctions, and this is kind of where the movie twist happens. Chris Pratt's character, his pod malfunctions, and he wakes up 90 years too early. So for part of the movie, he's trying to go get himself to go back to sleep, but he cannot do it by himself. It won't work. So he spends about a year in total depression, just this guy all by himself. Of course, to make it interesting, he notices Jennifer Lawrence's character, also sleep in her pod, he's able to watch a, a video profile of her and he's smitten. And he wrestles with what to do. Um, and ultimately, because of his deep loneliness, he decides to wake her up, claiming it was a malfunction. All right, so there we go. Now, I'll spare you the rest of the movie, but the point is quickly realized. Because it's 90 years before they will arrive, and because they are already about 30 years old, they will die before they get there. It will just be the two of them until they die. They'll live the rest of their lives as two people with no apparent purpose, and that's a big part of the movie. Like, they go into depression, they cry, they're angry, they fight, they, they try to create meaning, they, they try to find purpose, but it seems like it has no, no reason to be because there's no climb anymore. There's nothing to prove. I, you don't, how do you establish your individual identity and say, here is me, when it's just two of you? It's, it's, it's interesting how different life is when suddenly you're not in a society competing. And that is the point of the movie. And the thing is, they feel absolutely cheated. I don't get to be. I don't get to climb. And suddenly they don't know what to do at all. Well, this left me wondering. I remember walking out of it saying, hmm, what does God say about this climb? Are, are we to partake in it? What is our purpose for existing? What if we only lived with one other person? 
So let's compare, and that's what I want to do here for a few minutes, is compare society's narrative with God's narrative. And let me begin with a couple of verses that will uh, sort of center us here. I don't know if you can see that, but I'll read it. Out of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. We'll see this come up again and again and again. A fancy way to say, give everything you possibly have to God. And now, Israel, what does the Lord God ask of you? So here it is. Fear God. Fear God. Be in awe of God. To walk in obedience to him. Wow, that smacks society in the face. We don't walk in obedience to anybody but ourselves. Walk in obedience to him. Love him. Serve the Lord your God with, again, everything you have. And observe the Lord's commands and decrees. I once uh, sat down and made it my mission. I'm going to write down every command and decree there is in the Bible. Because I wanted to know, if I'm supposed to do this, what is it? Then I came to this next set of verses, Matthew 22, 37 through 40, not unfamiliar to us. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with everything you have. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now the interesting thing is then Jesus says, all the law, all the prophets, everything in the Bible hangs on these two commandments. If you get these two right, you got it. There it is. Throw yourself into God, throw yourself into loving others, and you have got the Christian message. Okay, this will be helpful for us in a minute. So, ultimately, Jesus says in 1 Corinthians, be imitators of me as I am the Christ. So there is our overall mission, be imitators of Christ. All right, here's what I want to do. I want to contrast society's definition of the climb with God's definition of the climb. Because it turns out God does want us to climb, but in a quite a different way as you might imagine. And we're going to do this with seven contrasts because everything holy and perfect is seven. So I had to have seven. All right. First contrast. Society says you determine the fate, your own fate, based on your own strength, believe in yourself. God says acknowledge your insufficiency rely on my strength and believe in me. Some of the songs we were singing were exactly saying that. See that contrast. Uh, I doubt many of you seen it because it didn't do well at the box office, but back in 2004 there was a movie called Raise Your Voice starring Hilary Duff. Classic. The climactic scene She's going through struggles in life, and in the climactic scene, she sings an original song called Someone's Watching Over Me. But here are the lyrics, and it's very American. I won't give up, no, I won't break down. Sooner than it seems, life turns around, and I will be strong even if it all goes wrong. When I'm standing in the dark, I still believe someone's watching over me. Oh, interesting. Could almost be Christian at this point, but the very next verses say, it doesn't matter what people say, and it doesn't matter how long it takes. Believe in yourself, and you'll fly. And it only matters how true you are. Be true to yourself, and follow your heart. Now, there's nothing more American than that put into one set of verses. Let's contrast that with the words of the Bible. Isaiah 40, 31. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength, 
They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Not in our own strength, right? But in our hope in the Lord. And in Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Our second contrast. Society says successful people devote themselves to their goals. Set goals, focus on them. We have all kinds of books and teachings about how to set your goals and then to reach your goals. God says successful people devote themselves to me and I establish their plans. Again, ooh, that rubs us often in our society very much the wrong way. God is going to set our plans. Proverbs 16, commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. Because when you commit yourself to the Lord, your plans will be God's plans. Jeremiah 29, for I know the plans I have for you. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Our God is good. Our God is good. Our third contrast. Society says you must make your own mark. It's an individual story. Maybe you get eight decades to do it, so do it well, and maybe people after you're gone will remember you. God says, you know what? You're an essential thread in a beautiful tapestry of faith that I weave together. It's a collective story. It's God working through all of us together. Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And Ephesians 2, 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we could walk in them. Okay, so we're already set. God knows what he has prepared for us. Our job is to climb towards Christ so that we can follow that and realize that and live into what we have been created for. So, the next one makes a lot of sense here. Success, society says, is climbing the corporate ladder. Keep working up, get that corner office with windows on two sides. That, my friends, is respect. God says, success is climbing towards me becoming ever more Christ-like. Some of you may remember a group from way back in the 1970s and 1980s, even though I think they probably still tour a little bit, called Boston. So its founder is named Tom Schultz. And Tom Schultz, before he was the lead guitarist and uh, writer of all the songs and the producer of this group, was an MIT grad, just a really intelligent guy, um, into technology and all that. And he worked for the Polaroid company corporation back when Polaroid was a money-making machine. Well, he worked there for a while and he f said he felt rather empty. Like this, this whole thing about climbing the corporate ladder just did not interest him. He didn't see the purpose in it. He felt like competing against other people to try to claw your way to get that corner office. He just didn't think that was very healthy. Hence he left and started this band and on their first album, second song, he penned a song called Peace of Mind. Listen to these lyrics. Too bad I can't sing. I mean, I just have to read them, but God gives us different gifts. 
Now you're climbing to the top of the corporate ladder, the company ladder, hope it doesn't take too long. Can't you see there'll come a day when it won't matter? Come a day when you'll be gone? It's kind of interesting, almost like he's thinking eternally here. Now everybody's got advice, they just keep on giving, doesn't mean too much to me. Lots of people out to make believe they're living. That life is this make-believe idea of climbing whatever society says is the ladder. Can't decide who they should be. I understand about indecision, but I don't care if I get behind. People living in competition. All I want is to have peace of mind. That's what he's seeking. Now, I don't think he's a Christian, but he's seeking that peace of mind. If he would uh, turn to the Bible, here's what he would say. Our Lord says, peace, I leave you. My peace, I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And in Ephesians, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Success is climbing towards Christ. Okay, our fifth. Society says, and this one's so clear, right? Rich people are successful. They are. God says obedient people are successful. We don't hear that very much. Obedient people are successful. Mm. In fact, we often will insult people that follow rules. Great example. Back in 1923, and if you'll show the picture, next slide. I don't know if you can see that, but that is the Edgewater Beach Hotel up on the north side. There was a meeting in 1923 of the world's most powerful financiers. They literally ruled the world financially. I'm going to read their nine names and what they do. One or two of them you may have heard of. Most of them you will not have. Uh, first one, Charles Schwab, who at that time was president of the largest steel company in the U.S. Samuel Insull, president of the largest utility company. Howard Hobson, president of the largest gas company. Arthur Cutton, the great wheat speculator. Richard Whitney, president of the New York Stock Exchange. Albert Fall, secretary of the interior to president, who was the president in 1923? I wouldn't have known. It's Harding. Whoa. Special bonus points for you. Climb to the next rung of the ladder. <laughs> Daniel. <laughs> Two more names, three more names. Jesse Livermore, the great bear of Wall Street. Ivan Kruger, head of the world's greatest monopoly. And Leon Frazier, president of the Bank of International Settlements. And they came to plan and to shape the continuing growth of the world's finances. Now, of course, you know we had then the Great Depression come. Here's what happened to these men 25 years later, the movers and shakers, the people who were successful and that other people wanted to be like. 25 years later, so about 1950, Charles Schwab was bankrupt. Samuel Insull died in a foreign land, penniless and a fugitive from justice. Howard Hobson was insane. Arthur Cutton was insolvent and died abroad. Richard Whitney had just been released from Sing Sing prison. Albert Fall had just been pardoned from prison and died at home, penniless. Jesse Livermore committed suicide Ivan Kruger committed suicide. Leon Frazier committed suicide. Is that success? Is that what we hope for? 
Listen to the words of Christ, Matthew 6, 24. No one, absolutely no one can serve two masters. For you will hate one and love the other, and you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Try as we might. The scriptures tell us we can't. Our sixth contrast. Society says rich, powerful, famous people are content, satisfied, at peace. I'm happier with money than without it. God says those who pursue me are content, satisfied, and at peace. You know, the kind of the original barons of, of mighty and powerful wealth in the U.S. Here's what they had to say, and you'll recognize most of these names, I should think. John D. Rockefeller on his wealth. I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. A guy by the name of William Henry Vanderbilt. You might have heard of his university. The care of 200 million, which is billions in his time, is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. John Jacob Astor. I am the most miserable man on earth. Henry Ford. I was happier when I was doing a mechanics job. Andrew Carnegie, millionaires seldom smile. Or consider this, I've been thinking about, I'm going to write a book on the 100 most famous movie stars of all time. So you can actually find these lists. So I've got the lists, I've downloaded the lists, and I've started to look at, well, how did their lives play out? Because these folks are the ultimate in success over billions of other people that have ever lived on this earth. These are the 100 most famous, most successful movie stars that have existed on earth. So here's what I know so far. Um, yeah, I counted at least 400 divorces among these 100 people. Well over 1,000 documented affairs, and you can bet there's a whole lot more that aren't documented. Massive levels of depression, drug abuse, alcoholism, ruined families that go on for generations bankruptcies, and yes, suicides. Wow, I mean, if they're the pinnacle and that's what you get, what, why are we chasing it? John 16, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, I'll guarantee it, but take courage. I have overcome this miserable world. Hmm. And finally, the seventh God says, and this is the simplest of them all, society says, glorify yourself. These days we do it by making our online presence known, by letting people know how interesting and important we are. God says, glorify me. Philippians 3, 7 through 8, whatever gains to me, I know. And now this is Paul talking about his former life before Christ calls him, and he's He's saying, you want me to brag, I'll brag. And he's bragging about everything that the world says is important that he had. And do you know what he says now that he has Christ? He says, I consider them all garbage. Throw it out. I th consider it all garbage that I may gain Christ. That's my goal. Psalm 96 through 1 through 3 tells us what we are to do. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among the people. It's so different how we would spend our time if we really followed what Christ is asking us. 
Psalm 29 says this, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, worship the Lord in his holy array. Okay, so how might we do this? Well, I'm going to give you just three steps, three simple steps. We climb some stairs here, so we can go to the next one. So step one, meditate on God's definition of success, on God's definition of the climb. And do this, just memorize, find one verse that speaks to you in the Bible about God's definition of the climb, of success. And memorize it. So you can use it when you are challenged, when you think that you are being tempted to go another way, or when you're at points of having to make a decision. Should I take that new job or should I not? Should I take that promotion or should I not? Let those words speak to you to help guide you as to what you should do. Second, is that you'll ask God through all of this to change your mind about what success is. Because the fact is, for all of us, as soon as this is done, we're going to walk out and society will start its pounding again. And a, a short 30-minute message isn't going to be enough to overcome the constant barrage defining su success and the climb according to society's ways. So ask God to change your mind and not be deceived by these lies and to get sucked into pursuing a false climb. And do this with this third step, maybe the most important. Find a trusted friend or a couple of friends and hold each other accountable. Again, when you have to make decisions, ask somebody you trust that you know is walking with God and say, do you think I'm doing this out of trying to glorify myself because this is, will pay me more because I'll get more respect? Or am I doing this because it's part of how I'm going to glorify God and what I'm called to do. Let me conclude with this Psalm 15. I think it just puts it so directly. Psalm 115.1. Not us, Lord, not us, but to your name be the glory. Just that simple. That might be a good one to memorize. Not us, not us, Lord, but to your name be the glory. Psalm 115.1. Last night I watched a football game I do like football, and I watched, it was Clemson against Texas A&M. True Southern game, you know this by the coaches' names. Dabo Sweeney, Jimbo Fisher. Well, Dabo Sweeney, I don't know about Jimbo Fisher, I don't know him well, but I know of Dabo Sweeney, the head coach of Clemson, a very strong Christian man, and this is what he teaches his uh, uh, players who are, like this year, ranked second in the nation. He says this, let the light that shines from within you, the light that shines in you, be brighter than the light that shines on you. Let the light that shines in you, God, be brighter than the light that shines on you. Trying to get your attention from society. So, if you could put that last slide up. Uh, we're actually part of a covenant church, and the covenant has a saying that tries to capture this, and we use this a lot within the covenant, that ultimately our purpose is always asking this, for God's glory and neighbor's good. And I would challenge you with that. The last song we sang just before I came up, take my heart, transform it, inform it, take my mind, transform it, take my will, conform it to yours, to God, to God. Let's close in prayer. Father, it's a challenge. You say we live in a world where we will be tempted where the devil is sly, where we are seemingly doing good things but being tricked and going down the wrong path. 
guide us, Lord. We do want to follow you. Give us that intensity to know what your heart is calling us to do, know what your will is, so that we may look back on our lives and say, God did it. We thank you, Lord. Amen.